Welcome back to the Mysteria Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Marcus DeSilva, and it is my great pleasure to introduce you to my newest guest, one Mr. Jim Shorten. This is the first of two episodes that we recorded. We originally thought that we could get it all done in one episode. However, once we get talking and Jim's a very talkative guy like myself. So once we started, uh, once we started to get going, I quickly realized that we were going to have to do uh, two parts here. So we recorded it over a few days. I, I think it was uh, about a week long period between episodes one and two. But for you, the listener, uh, both of the episodes are out right now. So you can just check into uh, both of those uh, right after you finish this one. So to give you a little bit of background, uh, Jim reached out to me via email after he had listened to one of my episodes with John Stryker Meyer. And for those who are new, or maybe just as a refresher, John Stryker Meyer, along with Roger Lockshear and Dale Hansen, uh, other guests that I've had the pleasure of speaking to, were members of Mac V SOG. Uh, that being the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. So just as a little bit of background information, uh, this was a highly classified multi-service United States Special Operations Unit, which conducted covert unconventional warfare operations prior to and during the Vietnam War. Established on 24 January 1964, the unit conducted strategic reconnaissance missions in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. They carried out the capture of enemy prisoners, rescued down pilots, conducted rescue operations to retrieve prisoners of war throughout Southeast Asia, and conducted clandestine agent team activities and psychological operations. And Jim himself was the team leader, uh, otherwise known as the 1-0, of reconnaissance team RT Delaware. And in this episode, we primarily talk about his time in Mac v. SOG. We also discuss a little bit about his time with the A-team in Vietnam, uh, for which he was a team, a team leader as well. Uh, his upbringing uh, was pretty interesting, basically growing up uh, on the streets as he ran away from home at quite an early age. And just he's such an interesting guy, and it was so much fun speaking to him. And I had the pleasure of meeting him in person, along with my previous MacVisaw guests um, at the Special Operations Association reunion. And for some more information about that event, you can tune into the episode that'll be after the episodes with Jim. Uh, it was an extremely impactful event for me, and. Uh, you can go listen to that. Uh, I'll get into more detail. So for this episode, really enjoyed my time speaking with Jim. Some of the missions that he was a part of were just insane, and it was just a pleasure to speak with him. So I hope you enjoy this episode and tune into part two of this episode once you finish this one. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. So the cool thing about... Talking to you guys, you Mac V Sog, interesting fellows that you guys are. Um, what's been very fun for me is the fact that your personalities are very different, and also there's some similarities. And I think just from 
just from my perspective, when I get the opportunity just to chit chat with you guys off the air, um, there, there's like this energy that's, it, it kind of always makes me chuckle. Cause I'm like, there's so, you're so different, but there's something that kind of unites you guys. Um, and I was just kind of wondering, especially when you were active duty and then also years later, you know, when you guys meet up at SOAR, the reunion, and you get to see each other decades later, I'm just kind of wondering what your thought process is on, you know, what, what kind of unites you. Uh, you mean like um, when we see each other for the second time or after so many years? Um, I don't know. Sometimes you don't even recognize the guys, you know, like, hey, what happened to you, man? Where's your hair? You know, stuff like, you know, but, uh, but um you well, as soon as they start talking you know you know you know yeah i remember you and stuff and some of my friends are just really funny i've got i have a i have like i have a buddy on an a team when i was on an a team his name is um uh lou merletti and lou merletti became the director of the secret service and so billy Waugh gave me his phone number so I, I i call up and i get on the phone you know the phone picks up and he goes merletti like that, you know, and I'm going, hey, Lou, it's, it's Jim Jones, 8502. He goes, hey, man, how you doing? Yeah, man, it's so good hearing your voice. He just turned right back to the old Lou, you know, when he's supposed to be this really proper person, you know, working with the government, you know, kind of, but it's really funny. And that's what it's like when you see these guys from SOG. You know, I remember when I bumped into Toby Tob, I, I was sitting there talking to somebody and all of a sudden this guy grabs me and starts jumping around with me and everything. Hey, Jim, I miss you, man. Like that it was Toby Todd. So, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, we're just, uh, you know, there's it it only 50% of us that came back from there, you know, and so many of them right now are dying off, you know, because of their age. And a lot of people went into drinking a lot and stuff like that, just really screwed their bodies up. So, uh, but I'm totally different. I got that British mentality, you know, like, if you know what I'm talking, you watch some of the old British movies, you know, like up, 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 hey, I don't care if you're like, your legs on the other side of the street, go get it. Let's get back into the battle, you know, and stuff like that, you know? So I've got that same mentality. So I'm always kind of joking around and kidding about it and stuff. But even though SOG is extremely uh, serious, it's a very serious uh, uh, project. So but yeah, I, I I just you know I've done so many crazy things in my life. That's just one of them. <laughs> well, so. and I figure uh, in talking to you and setting this podcast up, uh, two things I, I thought were kind of interesting that uh, jumped out at me as far as um, just like you mentioned, you know, like that British sense of humor. Um, you know what carries you through. But um, two things, I guess, as far as uh, humor and faith. And how that played a role and, and even for you, I mean, we'll get there probably kind of near the end of the podcast, but um, just to kind of bring it up now, that must help you get through those situations. Both yeah, I think it does. I think it does. Yeah. Uh, I just tell people, you know, you're not going to get out of this world alive. There's only been a couple of people that got out alive, you know, and uh, <laughs> that was a space shuttle. They just didn't come back. You know, so... You know, so it was sad, but, um, uh, so I just, you know, I just take it like that, you know, we're, none of us are going to live forever. And, uh, the other thing I did is I figured the odds of uh, being killed in combat is uh, like one in a hundred, you know, and it starts over each mission. So you've got a 10% chance of getting wounded and that 1% you're going to die from it. 
And it's getting better and better as time goes on. Unless, of course, like what's going on in the sandbox, you know, and they run over an IED or something and it just blows the whole thing up, That which is really, that, that'll really work on your head. You know, you don't know if you're going to make it to the end of the road or not, you know. Yeah. And so growing up, because uh, you had a very interesting entrance into the military in general and then later on into SOG, uh, but just just from a little biographical uh, point of view, just tell us a little bit about how you grew up and what led you to the army or the military in general. Um, well, I was born in Liverpool, England, and uh, my mother was a donut dolly during the Second World War. My father was in the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy. And um, so we eventually came to the States and then we had to go back to England. They had to get divorced and stuff. And then when it came back a second time, that's where I got the name Jones. I was adopted in the name of Jones. My, my birth name is short Um So I was raised, uh, my stepfather was a uh, kind of a hunter kind of guy. You know, he had the rugged beard and he was always, you know, hunting bears and hunting deer and elk and all kinds of stuff. So I kind of grew up in the mountains of Colorado. And um, so I, I learned a lot of stealth work, you know, sneaking around, trying to get the, the animals left, getting caught and hunting because uh, I was hunting probably when I was like 11 years old. So and and that survival skill, sort of speak, you know, got me through a lot of it in, in special forces, too. And then when I, um, I I was raised in the mountains, so I never played any sports to speak of. So when I got into high school and stuff like that, nobody nobody wanted me on their team because I didn't know anything about baseball, football, nothing. I didn't know any of that. So I went in the gymnastics and um, I did pretty good in gymnastics. I let it on the parallel bars and that sort of thing. Um, so then I, I, you know, I couldn't get along with my stepfather. And uh, I think he was kind of resentful of marrying a woman with kids, you know. And so uh, I ran away from home. And so when I was... Um, I think I was like 15, almost 16 or something when I ran away from home. So I lived in an old mine area for a while. I stayed at friends' houses and stuff like that, but uh, I, I couldn't handle that. I'd rather just go live in a mine shaft somewhere. Then when I turned 17, I was old enough to go join the Navy. Uh, so what I did is I went down to join the Navy, but I couldn't get in because I wasn't a citizen. So they ran all the paperwork real quick uh, through L.A. and got me my my citizenship. This By bad this time, I was living in uh, California. And uh, so uh, I joined the Navy and uh, my life took off from there. My first duty station, I wanted to go on, get on a ship, you know, because I love the ocean and stuff. But uh, I ended up getting stationed in Litchfield Park, Arizona. It's a Naval Air Station. And when I was there, I started flying airplanes and I started skydiving and everything else. And I was what, um, I was 17 years old when I started flying and skydiving and everything. And, uh, and it just took off from there. I was there for a year. Then I went to Norfolk, Virginia, worked on a ship for a while. Uh, I was on a pre-commissioning detail for the USS Arlington, but it took forever to get its commission. So um, I, I worked on a, on the a USS Danabala, which is a re refrigeration ship, AF-56. I worked on it for a couple of months, did a med cruise with them and stuff, came back. Then I worked on tugboats, which I really like to work on tugboats. Hard work, but it's a lot of fun. Good guys. And I worked on yard tugs for... Oh, probably about four or five weeks. And then they had a levy come down saying, hey, we're looking for guys that want to go to shore duty in Vietnam. And I look at this guy next to me. I go, hey, where's Vietnam? You know? And so this chief hears me and he says, it's, we're fighting a war in Vietnam. I go, but yeah, but where is it? 
<laughs> he, he goes, we're fighting a war. Don't you, don't you? I said, look, I said, I don't care about that. I said, I'll, I'll go. Just sign me up. I'll go. I just wanted to know where it was, you know? And uh, th then I had second thoughts when he was telling me it was like south of the equator or someplace down there, like, you know, 127 de degrees in, in the day, you know? So, um, but yeah, I went over to Vietnam. I went through uh, counterinsurgency training. I did um, survival school. I went through the school in Little Creek, Virginia. It's the, it's probably a little different, but it's a, it, it was the same instructors that did the, the the UDT guys, underwater demolition teams back then. That was the precursor of the Navy SEALs. And some of the guys were SEALs actually that taught us. But um, I went through that. There was 36 of us that went through. There was only six of us that passed. I was one of them in the past. And from there, um, you see, where did I go from there? I went, I, I went over to Da Nang, Vietnam. And I stayed in Da Nang for 22 months. And I, I worked with the sea. I was a seaman, but I worked with the Seabees because they were all shorthanded. I'll tell you how shorthanded we were. When we got to, we landed at the air base, the Air Force base there in Da Nang. And um, a lot of the Marines came with us, right? A lot of Marines are. But uh, they uh, they didn't have all their gear to eat with. So when we were sitting there having breakfast, there'd be like maybe 15 of us sitting around a table. And we'd take a bite with the fork and pass it to the next guy, you know, borrow his knife and cut it, pass the knife down. It was one of those deals, you know. Try to make a sandwich with the bread and just say so you don't need a fork and, you know, just eat the sandwich. It was, it was that's how bad it was. Um, and it was, everybody was intense and that sort of thing. So from there, I... Um, Let's see, where'd I go? I went to a place called Lich, um, to uh, uh, Camp, Tien, Camp Tiensha, and it was um, it was on the peninsula in Da Nang, but it was it was uh, on the south side, I think. No, maybe it was the north side. Yeah, it was the north side of uh, from where Tilt was. You know, John Stryker Myers. He was uh, he was at CCN down by uh, Marble Mountain, and we were at another hill just up the road from him on a place called Monkey Mountain. And Philco Ford had a big base up there. They were getting hit. We got hit with the enemy quite a bit. The enemy would get on the hill and shoot down at our camp all the time. So we had that kind of a problem. But um, we were working 18 hours on, uh, six hours off. And it took an hour to get back and forth. So that was, we only had four hours. So it wasn't really worth actually going to the fort, the camp. So a lot of times I just left, I just found a place behind some boxes somewhere and just went to sleep. And uh, then we'd get up and I'd drive the trucks or operate the cranes and do stuff like that, unloading barges and stuff. So I did that sort of stuff. And uh, then I, uh, the enemy put some, po some poison in our water and I got my ears really screwed up. Everybody, I got a skin problem from it and everything else. Uh, so I ended up, they were going to send me home from it, but I, I, I said no. Um, they sent me to the China Beach Hospital. And then from the China Beach Hospital, I went to the Philippines, Clark Air Force Base. Then I went to uh, Kadena Air, uh, Air Base, uh, Marine Air Base up in um, ok Okinawa. And from there, they were going to send me home. And I said no. And I went back to Vietnam. So I went back and I stayed in Vietnam for 22 months. And I learned the Vietnamese language while I was there. I had a good working knowledge of it. And so when I was finished, I came back to the States and I had a hard time dealing with what was going on you know, with the protesters and stuff. So I decided to just go back into the army. And since I, when I was driving the trucks, I was picking up a lot of green berets, you know, uh, hitchhiking. So when I picked those, picked those guys up and learned a little about what they were doing, I decided to go in the army and I wanted to be a green beret. And at that time that song came out because I was going to go in the Navy and be a Navy SEAL. But the, then that song came out and I said, you know, I, heck I can do that, you know? So, um, uh, 
I went ahead and took my battery test as a civilian and just went straight into uh, Fort, um, Fort Benning, no, uh, uh, Fort Ord, California for basic training. And from there, I went to advanced infantry training. And I was the outstanding trainee of the cycle for the battalion. It was, uh, I got that little statue and the certificate and all that stuff. So from there, I went to jump school, which was a piece of cake for me, right? And so there I went up to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and they put me through phase. We didn't have like uh, what they have now uh, with special forces. We have what's called phase one. And then you go through your MOS training and then you go to phase two. And from phase two, then you you they, they sit, send you wherever you're going. So I uh, that was that wasn't hard for me at all. I had a hard time with the they put me in communications at first and I had a real hard time trying to pick up that code. So I told him, I said, look, I said, don't I talked to the cadre. I said, don't lose me. I said, look, I got a working knowledge of the Vietnamese language. I said, I've already got, you know, 22 months in Vietnam. Um, I said, I worked with the CBs and I said, uh, you know, put me in engineers. And so they did. They took me out of communication, put me in engineers. And that was a piece of cake for me. You know, all the demolitions and I was good in mathematics. So I, I got all through that. No problem at all. And um, then phase two was uh, was a lot of fun. You know, there was a lot of fun. You, they take you out at night, you parachute out in the Uwari forest and then you just work your way through there and do your job blowing up bridges and stuff, you know. And then I got I called the Pentagon, talked to Mrs. Alexander, Billy Alexander. And I asked her, I said, hey, I want to go back to Vietnam. And she says, well, don't do anything foolish. I'll get you there. So I was the very last guy to get my orders. And I was the only one out of that whole graduation class that went directly to Vietnam. All the others cross-trained. A lot of them went to, some went to the 10th group over in Germany, but um, a lot of them went to, you know, stayed there right on Smoke Bomb Hill in, in uh, at Fort Bragg. You know, back then they had the, the third group, they had the uh, fifth group, the sixth group, the seventh group were all there at Fort Bragg. And the sixth group has been disbanded. The eighth group in Panama was, was gone. That was when I wanted to go. I would have stayed in if they would have sent me to Panama because yeah, good scuba diving down there. <laughs> <laughs> so but they closed down the eighth group as well so and so from there i went back to vietnam and um i was on the a team and i was on the a team just for uh, about five months or so you know they returned over to regional proper forces and then i volunteered to go to cnc and i went to ccc up in contum and i i had one mission my second mission i was a team leader right and so ju just to back it up a touch, just for the timeline. So when you uh, you finish with the Navy, you go back home stateside. Uh, did you land in California? Yeah. Okay. And so that would have been, is that sort of like peak uh, anti-Vietnam protesting at that point? Yeah, it, I, I think it probably was. Um, but I just didn't like it. I couldn't get along with, you know, I couldn't get along with the people. I just couldn't get along with them. It's like, you know, what are you afraid of? You know what you go to, what do you think you're going to, everybody goes to Vietnam is going to die or something. It's not like that. Not everybody goes to the sandbox is going to die. It's usually those guys are going back for the 15th and 18th, you know, trip, which is crazy. You know, their, their uh, missions are, they, some of them only go back for a month or so, so you know, and, and like in, in Vietnam, even Okinawa, the first group guys were, were coming over to uh, Vietnam, but they were coming over to do a mission. So they do the mission, and then when they're done with the mission, they go back to Okinawa. So, right. There's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so you figure, okay, we got to get out of the states. Let's go back. <laughs> and yeah. so go the Green Beret route. 
and yeah. the training. Um, and then what was your introduction to, and you're wearing the shirt CCC as well. So for people who are tuning in, you can see the proud, <laughs> proud logo there. Um, so what, what was your introduction into, into that? Cause it's always the, uh, sign on the dotted on the mysterious dotted line and don't tell anybody. And well, you know, a lot of people say, you know, a lot of guys didn't know, but it, we all knew what CNC was. Right. Really. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, the word gets out. So, uh, but a lot of the guys like when I was in phase two, especially first training, they, they said, you know, whatever you do, Whirly was his name. And thank him. We just lost Whirly, but, but he, uh, he said, don't, whatever you do, don't, don't go to CNC. I go, why? He goes, well, you get yourself killed. You go up there. I go, oh, heck. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. You just threw down the gauntlet, dude. <laughs> so I went ahead and uh, wanted to go to CNC. So when I got to CNC, they put me on a team with Dan Sturr and he was the team leader and he didn't have anybody on his team except for the, you know, he had his mountain yards. So I don't, I, you know, Dan's not going to be at SOAR this year, um, but uh, he said he'd probably, probably make it next year. But I don't know why he didn't have anybody on his team. I don't know what the deal was on the team. Uh, so, um, but I became, he asked me if I would be as 1-1, one, one, you know, assistant team leader. I said, sure. So, because I had about 36, 37 missions when I was on the A-team. I mean, I lived in the field when I was on the A-team. I'd go out for a week, come back have a bunch to eat, go back out for another two weeks, come back in, get a bite to eat, go back out for another week. I, I lived out in the field. So what, what were the sort of missions that you were running with a team? Like just so the listeners have an idea um, relative. To I'm just mission. going out and trying to get, uh, trying to make contact with the bad guys that are going into villages and try to catch them ahead of time, find out who they're, who they're with and where, where their unit is, you know, and I took, uh, I took like 15, no, I didn't. I took uh 12, 30, I took 12 prisoners when I was in on the 18. So I brought a lot of those guys. One guy was uh, got shot in the leg and we picked him up on a going through a after an ambush, got him. And he ended up dying in the hospital. It was really sad. It was real tragic. He was only a 14 year old kid. But um, that that's, you know, because the enemy was losing so many people. They were using women and children, you know, by the time it was over. But the um, any, anyway, so I. Uh, those kind of missions that all you do is you just go out, you just wait for them. It's kind of like the opposite of what we did in SOG because in, in CNC, it's like, we're that little few bunch of guys trying to go out and gather information. And we got all the enemy around us, you know, and we're in Vietnam, you know, you're, you, they're the like two or three, four man, five man team coming through and the enemy's all around them. And, you know, us considered being the enemy for them. Uh, so yes, yeah, it's just, it's totally reversed. <laughs> so, and, um, so let me see, where was I going with that on the missions? The missions were just playing, just going out and trying to gather information, try to capture somebody, find out what they're doing, that sort of thing. And that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. they, they would hit my camp. I, they hit my camp. They, they overran my camp right before I got there. And then when I got to the camp, I, I reinforced the camp pretty good, put chain link fence around the bunkers took the sand and put mixed cement with the sand. So, it, you know, if the bags ruptured, then the sand wouldn't run out. It would just be a concrete brick there. So I did that kind of stuff. Um, I did a lot of good tactics. I trained the guys. I built a berm and had them learning how to shoot and that sort of thing. Um, and that was pretty much it. And then I then they turned over regional profit forces, and that's when I went to CNC. Right. So but I had a, I had I was good in the field. Uh, you know, I was I was really good sneaking around the enemy 
And uh, I didn't have, um, I wasn't terrified, you know, like going, like I see some guys who get really terrified, especially on the A team. They used to bring guys down. They'd send guys to stay, come down and stay, spend a week with me. And some of those guys were terrified. I go, oh, come on, we're going to go on a mission. Oh, no, I'm not going. I'm not going. No, I, I had guys like that. Um, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, the uh, the missions in CNC were uh, totally opposite. They're totally up. They were really, really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And just yeah. really quickly, um, what do you attribute the, the fear that some of those soldiers were experiencing? Like just lack of experience and just kind of yeah. feeling overwhelmed? Yeah, they're city boys. You know, they. You know, I, I, when I came back, I was underwater operations, and I got sent on a, a mission down into uh, Panama, and uh, so we're down in Panama running through the jungles, and they want us to teach the Panamanian guerrillas survival in the jungle, and I'm going, they live here. What do you mean, guerrillas? <laughs> you... <laughs> you know, and I was shocked. They were kids coming out of the city, and had no clue about the jungle. You know, so it was kind of like that. And I'm going, wow, this is pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no wonder these guys lose battles and stuff. They just don't know, you know. Right. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, and special forces, you know, are teachers. Uh, an A-team is a, te they're a teaching group. They go out to other countries. They teach that country how to fight their own war so that the American people don't have to go in there and fight for them. So that that's what a and SF is all over the world. A lot of people don't realize it, but they're all over the world. Mm -hmm. That was what was interesting. Uh, I did a couple podcasts with uh, Dale Hansen. Um, oh, who, yeah, I know, you know Dale real well. Yeah, that's right. And it, in in his book, he does a really great job at describing exactly what you just said. That really the function of special forces is force multiplier. Exactly. And then. Uh, but when the missions get tough, then you send the teachers. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, Dale's a character. I like Dale. Yeah, yeah. He used to, he used to run around the compound with nunchucks. He's really <laughs> nunchucks. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. Oh, yeah. And um, so once you settle in and, and you right away, you get entry into uh, this RT Delaware in the 1-1 one, one position. Mm -hmm. um, and... How many you just ran two missions before you ended up becoming the one zero? No, one mission. One mission. Okay. Yeah, talking to Dan, Dan said he ran a few missions with me, but I don't think so. I think we just ran one mission. And the mission was sort of rough. But when Dan came back, he didn't want to run again anymore, you know, because he ran a lot of missions. He had a lot of a lot of missions under his belt. And so he decided, you know, I think I'm done with this. I just can't run this no more. And so um he quit. And so I'm bebopping across the compound and the first sergeant comes over and goes, Hey, Jim, how would you like to take RT Delaware? I go, sure. We want me to take him. You know, <laughs> goes, we want you to be the team leader, the team leader. I only ran one mission. <laughs> he goes, well, we think you're ready. And I'm going, well, I'll give it a shot. You know? So I became the team leader and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then in between, you know, missions and stuff, I was still looking for a guy cause I was by myself, just like Dan was. Um, I ran a couple of missions with some of the other teams. I was strapped hanged on a couple of teams. Strap hanging means like when a when a team uh, loses a man, then you go on, you, you you just go over and say, hey, I heard you lost a guy on your last mission. You got a mission coming up. He goes, yeah. I says, I'll run with you. He goes, oh, man, hey, thanks. You know, and then you just go do the mission and you kind of regret it after you're <laughs> flying in. <laughs> yeah. I had one where I was flying in and 
man, we just got, we got the shit shot out of us. <laughs> that helicopter got shot up so bad. And he pulled up and they said, put us down over there. And the same thing, we get shot up really bad. And then he said, well, put us down over there. He put us down over there. Next thing we're getting shot up. And all of a sudden I hear him hit him, hit him, hit, you know? And so I grabbed the guy and we, I mean, they just pull us out of there and that was the end of that mission we couldn't even get on the ground but chopper just looked like swiss cheese by the time we got back but i was i was shocked none of us got hit except for the one guy he got hit in the foot he had yeah, one foot. through the bottom through his foot that was hanging out of the yeah yeah he was holding on to a there was a litter pole there for stretchers just happened to be there and so he was holding on to that and one foot on the strut and the other foot was hanging out there like he was getting ready to jump off and all of a sudden whammo he got a bullet right through his foot and so he's laying down hit and I'm holding on to him because of the centrifugal force. You get thrown out if you're not holding on for life on those things, because they're trying to get up away from those bullets. So, but, um, but yeah, he was okay. Yeah. So, thankfully. Yeah. And so the, the, now your first mission is the one zero, is this the, this was the bright light. Oh no, pardon me actually. Cause I have a note here um, before getting into the RT Delaware, where you ran a bright light with uh, RT Illinois? Uh, yeah, okay. I ran a bright light with RT Illinois. I had a bunch of other missions in between there with RT Delaware, but they were just like linear missions, road watch missions, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but the um, on that bright light, bright light with Illinois, what happened was um, Lynn was, Lynn, um, uh, what, what was his name? Um, not Lynn. Who? Lynn Black? No, no. Uh, Lynn Black was CCN. Um, it wasn't Lynn. It was, um, oh, I can't think of his name. That's, that's horrible. Anyway, he uh, he was a team leader uh, for RT Illinois, and he was on a 30-day leave. And so um, what I did is they asked me if I would take the team up for bright light, because a lot of times, you you know, you stand you go up to Docto and you're sitting on bright light and nothing ha ever happens. So they, did, they said, we'll send us up there. So we got up there. And then all of a sudden, the, uh, they had a mission come through, and there was a team was in contact with a heavy element, and uh, one guy was killed, and I guess they towed him off or something. And one guy, they were coming out on ropes, you know, on the strings, stable rig. They were coming out, and a bullet or something hit the rope, broke the rope, and he fell to his death. And so they want us to go in and get the body out. So um, why can't I think of his name? Anyway, uh, he he came up with me. He came up to see the team because he just came back from leave, and and I'm going. Um, he says, "Hey man, we're going on a, we're going on a mission. You want to go?" And I can just see the wheels turning. You know, like I just got back from leave, and you're going to do a bright light menu. People get killed at that thing. You That's know? right. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, Steve Steve Kiefer Steve Steve Kiefer that was his name. So Steve comes up and he goes, "No, yeah, he can't say no. It's his team." So he goes with us. So he, I said, do you want to take the team? And he goes, no, you've already been briefed. You take the team. I'll go as the 1-1. One, one. And his 1-1 one, one went as my 1-2. Sure. So the three of us went. It was a three-man team. We go in, repel in, and we're walking up the hill, and this Cobra gunship flies overhead. And he goes, hey, Carrot, follow me. Because, you know, my code name is the Wild Carrot. So he just said, Carrot, follow me. So I follow him up the hill, and I see the, the rope in the tree. So we go up and we dig the guy up out of the ground and stuff. And we get they have him come over and they drop the ropes that we've repelled in on. And we want to hook him up and I they hooked me up. I hooked them up. So the four of us, I said, get us out of here because we can hear the enemy coming. So they as they pull us up through the trees, we got about past the first layer of the canopy. It was a triple canopy. 
And then I could look down through the trees and I could see the enemy coming and they're shooting at the helicopter, trying to get the helicopter down because then they got us all right. So they're shooting at them and and all I'm, I'm holding on to the dead guy going, man, dear God, get us out of here. You know, like that, because it's a crazy man, crazy mission, three men against 350 enemy, you know. So anyway, they uh, they got us up above the trees and they started taking off with us. And um, as we got away, about probably about five, six hundred feet off the ground. This A1E Sky Raider just came right underneath me, just right under, like 50 feet from my feet. And he just kind of looks up at me like this and just waves like that, you know, and and he was firing flechettes down. And I just kind of waved on him. We just took off, came on back, and it was a good mission. Mm -hmm. We got got him out, got the body out, and nobody got hurt. So it was really cool. And what was interesting about that is when you say 350 enemy, what was interesting about that is the fact that they actually got a I guess they got a head count or something like that. Actually, that figure holds up. It was accurate in that case. Well, they, you know, these guys up in the air, they have a general idea. Plus the, the people that were on the ground, the, the team that came out, you know, they, they had a pretty good idea, but um, like I told Tilt, you know, they just count the legs and divide by two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easy math. Yeah. Easy math. Yeah. And so, yeah. And those bright light missions, geez. Yeah. Yeah, they're dangerous. Bright yeah. lights are really dangerous. I did have one that was a piece of cake. Which I had one, one was that. Um, oh, uh, um, Paul Boyd was on that mission. In fact, we pulled Paul Paul out. The um, uh, it was a jump mission, and they they parachuted and they got kind of separated, and it, the mission was kind of like a fail. So they decided to try to get the guys back out again. Uh, they had a hard time trying to link up because of so many enemy, and so we flew in and. Um, Paul just called us right on in. We just dropped the ladder. He got hooked up to the ladder, climbed up, and came in, and we got him out of there. I've got a picture of Paul inside the helicopter, too, uh, when we landed back on the ground. Um, but he, uh, yeah, the, the, it was it was a pr- pretty easy mission, you know, which is unu- very unusual for a bright light. Mm-hmm. And then my third bright light was that um, Code Grade 4. That's right. Yeah. So I think, actually, that was a good point. So, um I think what we'll do is I want to um, I think we'll come back to that mission with the with the the Cobra uh, uh-huh. just because it, I guess it spans like four decades or three decades. So we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll kind of follow that times. Yeah. All, all the way through. Um, so before we get to that, um, but before we get to that bright light mission, I, I think we'll just kind of cover um, a few other things. Um that occurred in, in SOG. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through that very long mission. Um, well, that turned out to be a very long mission. Um, so I, I it's kind of funny cause you mentioned earlier as well, you know, walking across the compound and then, Oh, Hey, do you want to do a bright light? You know? And I think that that seems to be the running theme with SOG is that you never walk across the compound. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think it was Sergeant Downey. I think it was Sergeant Downey that was our first sergeant at that time. Because we had a few of them after him. I think it was a, no, that was Captain Wilkerson, I think was, he was in charge of recon. And then actually, um, uh, Bob Howard became, no, he became in charge of recon too, but but he was a captain when I knew him. Uh, He was a sergeant, you know, when he first got to, uh ccc but you know he quickly ran up i didn't get to meet him until after he came back after receiving his medal but um 
what a nice guy. Bob Howard is just a sweet man. He was really a nice guy. Um, I walked in, I walked out, I remember walking in and uh, to the, the, the old recon office turned out to be the, turned into the recon bar. And so I, wa- I walk in and I see this guy sitting at the bar and he's looking back like this and he looks at me and he goes, Jones, because you're Jim Jones, aren't you? And being the wise ass I am, I kind of look up and I go, oh, Howard, you're a Howard, aren't you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that. So we sat down, we started talking and stuff. And um, I don't remember what we talked about. And then this Colonel McGowan that we had, he came in and uh, started talking to him. And then that was the last time I ever got to see Bob. I mean, I've talked to him a few times, you know, letters. They sent letters and stuff. And uh, I sent him a nice card right before he passed and stuff, you know, because he passed away from pancreatic cancer. But boy, what a nice guy he was. What a character. Yeah. So. I, I, you know, I, I, I did a lot with, I mean, I worked a lot with the guys that received the medals over there. Um, uh, what's the last guy that just got one there? Uh, Mike. Um, Mike Rose. Mike Rose. Yeah. He was our medic. Um, I saw Mike when I came back to the States. Um, and then, um, Frank Miller, Frank Miller. I, I worked with Frank on the A team and then, uh, then we went to CCC. He went to CCC before me. He left a a five hundred two before uh, before the team turned over, and uh, he was there with a guy named Carlson and a guy named Chuck Hines, and Chuck Hines had a Willie Pico off in front of him, and, and he died from the burns, which is really tragic. I was with him when he passed away, and then um, Carlson, Carlson was killed in an ambush, so which was really kind of tragic too. So, um, but yeah, and then Miller gets the friggin' medal. Miller was quite a character. He was your Rambo. Mm. You know, like in the movies, that was Frank Miller. He was like, if you can picture uh, Stallone being real skinny, that was because <laughs> Frank Miller was kind of thin <laughs> and tall. So, but I'd ask Frank, I'd go, hey, uh, what are you doing back here, Frank? I just saw you leave for a mission. He goes, killed nine of those bastards. <laughs> you know, that's just the way he was, you know, so. And a lot of people don't know it, but when he was put in for his medal, he was put in for a Silver Star, and it was upgraded to the Medal of Honor. Oh, wow. And I, to this day, I think they did it to keep him out of the field. Because <laughs> 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 once you get it, it takes like a year to get it. You can't go anywhere for a year. You know, they, want, they don't want you getting hurt. Yeah. So, so but I, th- I, I still think that's why they did it. <laughs> Playing playing the long game there, yeah, strategic move. Yeah, but he was he was a nice guy. I like Frank. He was really a cool guy, real nice guy. But if you're in trouble, he's the guy you want to go get you. Yeah. Man, that guy, well, he won't cut corners. He'll go right in there. Just he'll kick butt and get you out of there. Mm-hmm. Him and Bob Howard. Except Bob did it more of a military way, and Miller would just kill them all and get you out. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the way he was. So I gotta be careful what I say. He's got a beautiful daughter, so I don't want her. <laughs> I don't want her to get the wrong opinion. Frank was really a good guy. He really was. That's it. Excellent soldier. And so um, I, I got a note here that um, so as, as you're walking across the compound, and so literally my my note says, "Go get the tank mission." That, that's the that was the one with the helicopter getting all shot up. We went in to go get a tank. What happened is the guy lost the man on his previous mission. And uh, the first sergeant said, hey, uh, would you mind strap hanging with so-and-so? He lost a man on his last mission. and He's got a mission coming up. 
I go, yeah, I don't mind. I'll go. So I go over and I talk to him and um, he, I said, yeah, I heard you lost a man. He goes, yeah. And I got a mission coming up. He says, I'll run with you. And he goes, wow, thanks. You know, I appreciate it. So, and so I, he told me, he says the mission's in a couple of days. Then he told me what the mission was. And I'm going, what? I go for crying out loud. That tank's not going to be by itself. There's going to be thousands of enemy around that tank. That's one of their pride and joys, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we, uh, uh, I did an, uh, an, uh, um, an aerial recon. I flew over the area, took some pictures of the area and stuff like that and came back again. And he agreed. He agreed a couple of places that I saw. There were a couple of places he thought too, but those are the first two areas we got shot out of too. So, and then, um, then he just said, put us down the other spot. And then that's when uh, we were turned in Swiss cheese. <laughs> I mean, it was friggin' unbelievable. I mean, you could hear the bullets whizzing through the helicopter not hitting anybody, just you can just hear him, you know, but uh, nobody got hit until he got hit in the foot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just insane. You can hear him hitting the helicopter, you know, hitting the tail end and, uh, you know, by the gun and the gunners. He wasn't even shooting at the time. We were just coming in because we weren't, we couldn't see the enemy. We couldn't, couldn't even see. You couldn't even see them. No, it was all open ground too. It was all open ground. It was slash and burn where they, it looks like tic-tac-toe, you know, and they, and then the hills, what they do is they, they don't mo cut down the trees in the creek areas where the hills come together like this. So you get these trees growing there and you can't walk through those areas because they're going to have uh, enemies sitting in there waiting for it. They probably won't have a booby trapped unless they know you're coming in, but uh, because it's their place, there's their other country. You don't want to booby trap your own area in case your own men get run into it. So, but um but yeah, that was a that was that was a pretty intense mission and um, real memorable. It was it was a cool mission actually to be able to get go fly through bullet a rain of bullets like that and come out not getting hit. <laughs> I mean that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, but so you just get back and just pat each other on the back and say, "Hey, we made it." <laughs> get ready to go again. Yeah, I told the team sergeant. I go. I mean the 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 um, uh recon sergeant i said hey why don't you just drop a bomb on it you know <laughs> it's gonna light up with all that enemy down there just go in and drop some bombs on it mm -hmm. but i guess they wanted to see how intense it was with the enemy you know right. instead of doing infrared at night because i guess if you get underneath covers and stuff they can't pick you up on infrared we used to have um we used to have these this material we put on our back and uh, they could pick us up from the air they you know with infrared they could see us going, which is really interesting, hmm. you know, through the canopies and all that stuff. Oh, so it actually would show up through the canopies. Even. Yeah. Well, you have to be, you have to be, I mean, if you go between the trees, you know, there'd be little bare spots. They'll right. see, they'll see you moving through there. If you're underneath a bunch of covered leaves, they probably won't see you. Mm -hmm. And, and because of, you know, the triple canopy jungle, um, that's the thing that, you know, when I was talking with uh, Tilt and uh, Dale, um, just the fact that, and when Tilt had his uh, run in about a foot away from from an enemy soldier crawling up on him uh, on oh, the and it hit, grabbed his foot. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> you know, but and I guess that's really the case that it's it at night it really is just black. Like you just can't. There's no light that comes through. It's pitch black. I mean, you can't see anything. I had one mission where I was out there laying, and I we heard the people coming. And I'm sitting there going, they're looking at me and I'm looking at them. We can't see each other. 
you know, just pitch black. And then we got up early in the morning. We were going to head just try and get out of there. But we got out of there. I was strap hanging on another team. It was with Joe Vandiver. And, and when we started getting out of there, um, heck, no incident at all. But we, I think it was about maybe a couple hours later, we uh, had a whole bunch of apes coming through. So we don't, I, my guess is probably apes going through, you know, they were coming up looking at us and we we're looking at them and they might see us. I don't know. They, they probably got keen eyesight at night, like cats or something, but um, yeah, no, no problem. I had one that kept looking at me. Oh, that was another mission. I was on a mission with John Caviani, uh, John Caviani, the Medal Honor guy. Yeah. Uh, Johnny and I were on a mission. It was one zero school and we're walking through and these, all these, apes black black and white apes coming through and there was one that had long red hair and he just stood there holding on to the branch of his feet and he just kept looking at me and i remember when johnny turned around he goes i, th I think i think he's in love with you jim <laughs> well, maybe he was looking at your red hair maybe it was, yeah, uh, was looking at my red hair you know and i'm sitting there going i got my gun on him i go please don't attack because man they can kill you you know i go oh yeah yeah, no, just go away. He finally just left. <laughs> and Johnny, that was an interesting mission. Mission because uh, there was four four ropes on the helicopter for stable rigs, and um, uh, they dropped the ropes down. But there was five of us on the ground, and so John and I came out on one rope. You know, where it has a rope comes down, it has a branch comes down, and you hook up like this. Well, we just hooked one side here, and I hooked the other side up to him, and so the two of us came out on one rope and we're kind of like hanging, and. Uh, then John's shooting down at the bad guys and we're spinning in circles. We're below everybody else because we're heavier, but he's shooting and we're spinning in circles. You know, I'm yelling at him like, I'm like this, you know, John, shoot the other way. Shoot. <laughs> we're spinning so fast and he's just sitting there laughing and having a good old time. So finally I got my gun. I started shooting the other way to try and slow us down. <laughs> so <laughs> counterbalance. It's a counterbalance. It was, it was hilarious, but he was a good guy. I really miss Johnny. Just a sweet man. I I really like him. Good man. And I, I have a note as well here about um the that you were well <laughs> danger close, I guess putting it lightly, but uh danger close with a uh B-52 bomb run. Oh yeah, that was um I think it might have been with Joe Vandiver again. I think we were doing um a linear recon and we we're right next to the Hochman Trail. And so, uh, so what we did is we were laying there. We had a hill between. We knew they were going to bomb it. So, but uh, you know, you had the road here, and then it came across, and it was a hill like this. It came down, and we we're just on the other side of the hill. And uh, I'd say we we're probably, uh, probably, probably a half a mile at least from the Hochman Trail. But we we're up there, and we we're bouncing on the ground when they did the arc light coming through, and they're dropping that arc light, and uh, you're bouncing, you're bouncing. I remember one of our yards got got scared and we told him and i remember joe i could hear joe lean over to him and he goes many vc die and he goes oh good as he's bouncing on the ground <laughs> you know like that i remember that it's hilarious so the but um yeah that was it was like flash bulbs going off in front of you even though there was a hill between us it was like flash bulbs it was so bright because that's like um i think i think when i was talking to tilt i think it's like 108 bombs per uh, a B-52, 108 bombs dropping, and there's three of them. So that's, uh, what, 324 bombs right there uh, each pass. So, and they do it three times a night. And how big are these bombs? I, I, 
You know, I think they're 100, 250, maybe 100 pound bombs. They're not real big bombs. Uh, I've got a picture. If you got Frank Greco's book, uh, there's a picture of um, of uh, I'm on the Hoachman Trail and there's a truck laying on the side and there's a bomb laying on top of the truck, <laughs> you know, where it didn't go off. Right. Uh, and they they look like they're probably well they can't they got to be more than 100 pounds I would say they're probably 250 pound bombs because a 500 pound bomb would be a lot bigger but it's very possible it could be 500 pounders too I I really don't know I'm not good on all that nomenclature stuff you know yeah I don't care about it <laughs> yeah that's it bomb bombs and that's, that's it. right just yeah. whatever you do just do <laughs> <Big> it bomb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I guess when they drop those two, um, you don't hear it coming because it's they're they're flying at such an altitude that you can't actually hear the the bombs drop. Uh, you can what you don't you don't hear the bombs, but what you do is you hear the tray. There's like a load of bombs and then a tray and then a load of bombs and like another tray kind of a thing. And so when they drop it, you're hearing the tray. That tray will come down and whistle. You can hear it coming down. Uh, and I've noticed that on every drop, I I, I could hear it. I can hear those trays coming down. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that that's it. When I went back um, back to Laos and I was up on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I found lots of trucks, a lot of trucks, man, uh, all blown apart on the side of the roads and stuff. Tanks, airplanes that, that got shot down. I found a lot of those when I was up there. Mm -hmm. So... I'm going to do a book on that Cobra 4 and then uh, it'll have a videotape because I got a lot of footage of a lot of stuff on that. So that it'll all be on there. That's right. Well, why don't we, since we kind of walked into it, let's, let's get into that mission. So, uh, so this is, uh, you're with RT Delaware. So you're team leader one zero for RT Delaware at this point. And I guess was this, uh, in my note, at least I have that it was two weeks after the bright light with, uh, Illinois. It could have been. It could have been a week later. I I really okay. don't remember. I really don't remember. Shortly after, I guess. But yeah. Okay. And uh, so, uh, just to to set the scene before I uh, hand it over to you to fill us in. Um, so you get approached to do a bright light. This is in Cambodia, and there's an F four jet, uh, code name, and this is Cobra eight four that went down. Right. Um. And so it went down with two pilots, um, the two pilots, uh, Eric Huberth and Alan Trent. And I guess the Air Force tried to get them out and it was just too many enemies. They just couldn't get to them. And so they come to you and um, they say, you know, can you try and recover these two down pilots? And the and I guess you're also looking for uh, you bring on a new team member was pretty interesting in his in his own right um yeah homer friend, uh homer yeah yeah homer so, hungerford uh so he had um when i met him he had seven and a half years of combat it was second world war korean war in vietnam and that's all the active duty he had uh he only came in for fighting and he stayed i think he eventually retired out of the military i don't know um but he passed away in 2014 but he was like Ernest Hemingway. When he got uh, when he got a 30-day leave, he went to Africa and did big game hunting and stuff like that. You know? And he had a couple of 90-foot sailboats in Hawaii, owned half of a hotel. He had a hotel there, but he gave half of it to the person that was helping him. 
as long as she took his share of the money and threw it in the bank for him so he can, you know, go party and live his life. Um, I saw him when he came back from Vietnam. Uh, he landed in San Francisco and I went up to go see him. And he never drank when he was in Vietnam. But uh, when I went to see him, he was at the top of the, you know, he's at the Mark Hopkins. And he's laying there on this bed naked. And he's got this French masseuse gal, you know, massaging him. And there's these champagne bottles all over. Hey, Jim, come on in, man. Have some champagne. You like that? And then later that night, we took off and went to Sausalito. And he had a friend up there named Fred Lyons, who was uh, one of the cameramen for the movie Hatari with John Wayne and stuff. And this guy lived in Sausalito. So we went and had dinner with him and everything, then went to uh, Fred Lyons' house. And he had a movie theater downstairs and he was showing us movies that his son was doing and all kinds of stuff. But that was just the way um, Homer was. He was just really a character, just lived a big, bright life, you know, mm -hmm. really a nice guy. So, yeah, well, and, and the fact that he must have been much older as well. Yes, he was. The... That's why a lot of guys didn't want to run with him because of his age. Right. And a lot of guys didn't want to run with me because I was fairly new. You know, like <laughs> right. Hey, this guy's only been here what eight months, you know, <laughs> something like that. They want, they want to, they want, they didn't know me, mm -hmm. and I was always kind of quiet anyway. But um, so I asked Homer if he'd be my one zero, a one one, and he goes, "Yeah, I'd like to." I said, "Okay, great." So we trained a bunch together and stuff, you know, at the yard range where you do your a and I drills, is and I meet uh, I and A drills, I and A drills, and. Uh, that sort of thing. We'd practice with it. So the other guys get used to him, you know, the mountain yards would get used to him because they felt the same way that he was a little bit old. And, um, but I told him, I said, he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of experience. He's not going to cower if they're, if we get into a battle, mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's going to be right out there. So that's why I wanted him. And um, so it worked out pretty good. So uh, anyway, we had this mission come up. And so we go up to Doc Toe and they told us that we want you to wait. It's getting late now anyway, but the Air Force is going in. So the Air Force tried to go with the PJs and they couldn't get on the ground. It was just way too heavy, too hot, too hot. So they came out and then they sent us in and it was getting pretty late. It was after lunch. So they put us in and I climbed down the ladder. And as soon as I'm flying over, I'm looking down and I'm, I see the Ho Chi Minh Trail there and I see this bridge and I'm going, oh, no, yeah damn this is this is not going to go well you know so so anyway i get off the chopper i climb down wait for the next chopper to come in homer gets off and then we start walking down and as i'm walking down this hill into this saddle you know where it's all burned out from the jet going through except for the saddle because it skipped right over that spot but when i go there i look off to my right and i see three enemy and my my yard and i caught him at the same time you know the, my uh I actually, it was my interpreter. Anyway, I, I see him. I see him looking and I turn around like that and I see these three enemy and one guy had a rifle on me. And I the first thing you know, you have to think like lightning fast. I just said, come song like that. I said, don't don't shoot. And and so I just looked at I went like that. With my rifle and said, you know, D, you know, D to Mao, get out of there fast. And so the three of them left. I couldn't see if the other guys had weapons or not because they were behind some bushes. But anyway, they left. And so I'm walking down a little bit further and I'm starting to see all these bunkers. And there's a bunch of CBU sitting inside these bunkers, too, that didn't go off. And so then I look a little bit further and I see this this fence sitting there. 
And I see this communist star over the top of the entrance going into this fence and it was a graveyard. And so I went in there looking for any fresh graves or any kind of writing on the rocks. I couldn't pick up the writing. It was, it was like somebody wrote on it with a pencil. And so then right from there, we walk out, there's this big 20 by 20 foot meeting house out of bamboo on stilts right there. So anyway, we, we looked through that. There was nothing in there. So then we went ahead and I started moving up the hill. And as I'm moving up the hill, we found a boot with a foot in it. And it, it was an American boot, but it turned out to be an indigenous foot. And um, as we're moving up a little bit more, all of a sudden, there's these mini guns are getting firing off. Uh, I knew it couldn't have been the enemy, but I'm going, you know, I'm trying to go like, what the heck is that? You know, and I got on the horn because the bullets are like, like they sound like they're like 12 inches over my head. I know, you know, mini guns, you know, when a bullet goes over your head and it breaks the sound barrier, it cracks right over your head. You really can't tell where it's coming from. So anyway, the bullets are flying over my head and I'm getting on the horn. I'm going, hey, what's going on? And he goes, um, you got six enemy trucks and um, armored cars coming after you and a bunch of troops running behind it. So they estimated again, like 350 or more enemy. That's just what they could see on the Ho Chi Minh Trail coming over to get us. They had no idea what was coming behind us, coming up through the, because it's triple canopy. So we get up to the top and they said, we're moving, we're finding pieces of the jet and everything. And so we get up to the top of the hill where the second hill where it hit. I see these hooches that were on the ground. It was like squares, like it just wiped them out. And the whole village was wound over with bamboo. And so then I, I, I told I told Homer, I said, you go over this way, I'll go this way. And so we ran around trying to pick everything. We picked up pith helmets and belts and medicinal bottles and um, um, uh, kind of bandages and, you know, all kinds of stuff, uh, uniforms. So we picked all that stuff up, threw it in the rucksack, and we came back. And then the um, guys overhead are saying, we got to get you out of there. I says, well, I'm not to the jet yet. He goes, he says, if we can't get you out of there now, you're going to have to spend the night. He said, we're running out of ammo, food. I mean, running out of ammo, running out of um, uh, fuel. And then there was a storm coming in. So thinking of my men, I said, well, I better get them out of here. So they came in with the first chopper. First chopper comes on down and gets Homer and two of the yards out. And then the next chopper comes in. And as he's coming in, they're firing. The gun, gunners are firing into the trees as well. But as the chop, second chopper come in, I, I told him, I said, I want two gunships on both sides, you know, Cobra gunships. And I want you firing in both sides of our team, just firing like crazy into the trees to keep the enemy down. And just as he's coming in, I guess he's probably maybe about, I don't know, maybe a, uh, not even 100 meters out. But anyway, he's coming through and, and all of a sudden these guys start breaking through the bushes and one gets an RPG off. It hits a, a bush or something next to me and it goes off. And I got hit in the arm, in the chest, and a blister here. It's a blister with a shrapnel in it. And I still got some shrapnel in here. But the um, that then we were shooting like crazy, trying to keep them down. Some of the other guys got peppered with that, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, that, that B-40 around the RPG. We got hit with it too. And, uh, but we're keeping the bad guys down. And as a chopper comes in, he's just drop, he's dropping the ladder. And so we're running over, trying to shooting and getting on the ladder. And we just hook up to the ladder and they just take off, you know. So, but the, um, when he was coming in, I hear this, bam, like that. And I'm going, oh, I'm waiting for the chopper to fall down on me. I thought he got hit with an RPG. But what happened is he hit a tree and knocked two feet of his rotor off on, on both, on both. Rounds. So, but he still managed to pick up, 
and get out of there. And then we got out of there and then, then the enemy just started, I mean, the uh, good guys just started just pounding that area with, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, ammo and stuff like that. And we couldn't get, I could see the jet, but I couldn't get to it. And when I went back again in 20, uh, was it 2017? No, 20, 2002, I went back and I, I went over to where the jet was. And then I realized that the hill was like this. When I, where I was on this hill trying to go down and get up the other side, chances of getting to that jet would have taken quite some time. And chances are there was probably a lot of enemy there already. Um, but, you know, like I said earlier, they a, couple, a year ago, I guess, or a year and a half ago, they found a dog tag of Alan Trent. And they found some bones as well. But the bones, the second year, last year, I think they found some bones. But the bones turned out to be animal bones, not, not human. Um, so, and I'm hoping to go back again. I've been back, uh, I went back on my own dime where I, you know, walked a hundred and a uh, hundred miles each way, a hundred miles there, spent three days there, a hundred miles back. And then I went back with, in 2017 with DPAA and, um, stayed there for six weeks, helping them to dig up everything and go through it, looking for teeth or anything. And, um, but now they got a civilian company going over and doing everything and, so I'm hoping to be able to go back with those guys. So I don't know how in depth you want me to get in with all that. Cause it's a real long story. No. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. And so I just had a couple questions as well. So as you're getting extracted, um, once the enemy starts closing in on you, how, how close were you to the jet? I would say probably straight line distance, probably about a hundred yards. Right. And so yeah, then the hill, hill was like this. The first one we landed on, it came down like real kind of mellow. And then it came back up to this hill. And then this one here just went straight down. That's right. And straight up to the other side. Mm -hmm. And the and the jet came to rest on hill three, hill. which was the, the steep. Yeah. Right. And so you, you get extracted and, you know, it, it, you, you try to get the pilots and you couldn't. Right. And so I guess when you get back to base, uh, that's when you have an interaction with uh yeah the cobra eight, three yeah and yeah. so they were the ones who saw cobra eight four go down yeah it was a huge fireball when it hit and the engines actually left the fuselage on the first first hill and they landed not too far from where the jet rested they not too far i'd say probably maybe 50 to 100 meters both engines. I found. I saw the uh, when I went back in 2017. Uh, we found the engines. Right. So you know, I've got a picture by one of them. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, it's um, uh, it, yeah, it was really, really, really steep. Mm -hmm. And and once you talk to uh, the the pilots from Cobra Eight Three, um, I mean, what does that feel like to to tell them? Like, uh, it sucks, man. You know, I'm a doctor and I, I hate it when I have to tell people you got cancer. I hate it, you know, and you'd be surprised how many doctors want me to tell the patient so they don't have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, because because I'm a radiologist and I go over the films and uh, and I'll call the doc up and say what I found. And and he goes, uh, you want to just tell the patients because keep asking. They always ask you what you find, you know, and he says, well, if you want to tell them, you can. I go, well, Thanks. Yeah. And I, and I tell him, I said, it's always possible it could be an infection. You know, let don't look at the worst. Just just deal with it. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, 
yeah, some of them it's really bad. So mm -hmm. I had one where I pulled the film down and underneath the clip where the film was, I found another lysis in the bone and I'm going, oh no. Because <laughs> first I thought it was an infection and I'm going, no, it's not. So poor thing. She was such a sweet gal. She didn't make it. But, uh, but anyway, mm. yeah. And, and so, you, you know, you have that interaction and, you know, and, and life goes on, you know, you, you continued with a bunch of missions. Like we, we kind of touched on those uh, a little bit earlier. Um, but that one, I mean, that one stuck with you. Oh, yeah. That was the only mission I ever failed on where I couldn't get to the jet. I mean, I I had, I don't know, 48 or 50 missions. I, I think less than 50. So maybe on 48 to 49 missions, something like that. I really don't don't remember. Uh, I never counted my missions, you know. Uh, going by helicopter, I'd put it, I'd put down the, you know, the date and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. for the air metal thing. But um, other than that, no, I never, I, I really don't know. Right. When I was on the A team, a lot of my missions were by truck. You'd truck in, get out, and go for the jungle. A lot of them you walk in, you know. So. Mm -hmm. And so then you know, as, as the years go by, then you you finish up your your time in SOG, and then decades later, you're you're stateside. You, as you mentioned, you become a radiologist, and so you you know you go on this whole other career path, life path. Um, but that mission, you know, kind of sticking with you, and then. Um, just as you mentioned, so you, you, you go back, uh, on your own dime, um, you know, you get a bunch of camera equipment and, and you head back, uh, in 2002. And so, yeah, we'll kind of go through a bit of the details. Cause some of this stuff was, was <laughs> as I'm making my notes for this, I'm like scratching my head. I'm going, what, you know, um, well, you, know you know, there's a big career right between those two. Yes. That's yeah, right. was, we're going to get to that in the second podcast. Rescue too. That's so. right. Yeah. So then I, uh, on that, what I did is uh, one of my buddies, I was on the A team. He was a medic on the A team with us. His name is Harlow Short. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, I, I found, I saw Harlow's name pop up on my computer. So I contacted him and he goes, yeah, I'm in Washington. He said, I said, well, what? I'd like to see you again. He says, okay, I'll come on down. I've crashed with you for a few weeks. So he came down to Tucson and stayed with me for a few weeks. And um, I told him, I said, I'd like to go back to that crash site. And he goes, well, let's go <laughs> like that. And so anyway, he, um, I got a bunch of information I could from DPA. It was, it was joint recovery teams back then, um, uh, JTC or something. I can't remember. But uh, they gave me a whole pamphlet, all the information, where it was. Because all those years, I thought it was in Laos, and then it turned out to be in Cambodia. Um, so anyway, they um, they gave me they gave me all that information. I went over with Harlow, and I gave Harlow like $16,000 and something like that. And I said, hey, why don't you go over and get everything set up? And he goes, okay. So he, he took off and went back to Cambodia. And um, I told him I'd be there probably in about a month or so, maybe two months. So I told where I was working, I said, I'm going to take a vacation. And because I was working 24 seven, I mean, I was so beat reading x-rays. So anyway, so I left and uh, went over there and met up with him. And we just uh, went all the way up to Ben Lung. We got to Ben Lung, which is uh, south of the tri-border. I talked to this hotel owner and uh, asked him, 
I said, I'd like to go up there and take some, you know, footage of wildlife because it's a big Radican Curry province is a huge wildlife refuge now. And they're still having problems. They got tigers and everything in the area, but the Vietnamese come over and are killing all the animals and especially the tigers, you know, because of the bile and stuff. They think it makes them superhumans or something. I don't know. But um, so anyway, uh, I, I he introduced me to a, a ranger that was there. And uh, he, I told him what I was doing. I told him I wanted to go take pictures and I show him this map and stuff. And he's looking at me and he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I says, well, let me tell you the real reason. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> and he, I told him and he goes, I know the crash site. So he, we got five other guys and we just, we took elephant for a while. We took trucks for a bit, got on some elephants, went up by elephant for a while. And then we took river boats and got up as far as we could on river boats. And then we had to get off and then we had to hump like a hundred miles through the, you know, up over mountains, around mountains, up rivers and stuff like that. So it, what takes like 45 minutes in a helicopter took 10 days on foot, you know? Right. So, but uh, yeah, so we, we hiked up through there and it was, it was a great time. Really is a really good time uh, living off the land, uh, sleeping out in the jungle, uh, I mean, I loved it. I, I I love the jungles. I really do like the jungles. So, but uh, it took us 10 days to get up there. And then we got down where the trucks parked. We set up a camp just off to the side of where all the trucks were parked on that, on the, on the mission. And um, I found all kinds of stuff and nose cones, flechettes, all kinds of, the th I took a metal detector, but it was just ridiculous because of so many bullets, There's zillions of bullets all over the place. And then I realized what took the enemy so long getting up that hill because the, the hill, the hill that went around, I told you, was really steep on this between the second and third hill. That hill came around. And when it came around, it was really hard. It took those guys, it took us probably three, four hours to try and get up that hill. Because for every, you know, three steps up, you take two steps back. It's like it was ridiculous. So, but <clears throat> we finally got up there. I hunted all over. I found over 60 bunkers. I found communication wires all around. Uh, so it turned out to be, uh, what it actually turned out to be was a hospital. It was a hospital for everybody getting injured on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And um, uh, when I went back in 2017, uh, one of the guys from um, um, Stony uh, Pebble, Pe was it St not Stony Beach? Stony Beach, one of the guys that over there, he they work with getting information from locals about if they've somebody said, Well, I think I found a piece of an airplane or something. They go in and they try to see if it's something that where the guys were missing. And they so he does that, but he went on down and it was when we were up there hunting for the remains of the two pilots, the Vietnamese were down there looking for their people. <clears throat> and um, he asked them, and um. He said that no, it was a hospital. It was a hospital, and uh, and they said that um, says I, he asked them how many people do you think were killed here, and he says well we found the remains of 127 so far, and he says we're still missing over 100, so there's over 227 people killed that they know of right there, and how many died from wounds later we don't know, but is but it was just a hellacious battle. I felt horrible. I said, you know, why don't they just let us go in and get the bodies out? They're dead, you know, let us just get them out, you know, but they don't think that way. Right. Yeah, so. And so. 
one of the things as well that I, I thought was kind of interesting, like something that you, you wouldn't normally um, suspect or think of is that uh, like with the crash site uh, that it gets scavenged and, uh, you know, by bandits and, and just people from Vietnam coming over the border. And just earlier, I should mention uh, when you said the tri-border, um, just for the listener. So it's um, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. So that's right. sort of that, that tri-border area um, that we're referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I guess did, that would have, I, I guess, made it more challenging, the fact that you go back, you know, three decades-ish later um, to an area that's been picked through and scavenged. And um, and that's when, and in 2002, that's when your journey kind of comes to a bit of an abrupt end uh well you know when i was there in 2002 um i found a lot of debris from the airplane there um not as much as from when i went back in uh, when was that mission there's 19 i don't remember what what was that uh 79 70 no 69 Maybe it was 69. That's terrible. I forgot the date of the actual mission. Let me see. I was in the Navy from 64 to, say, 74, 74 to 78 was Army. No, 68 to 78. So, no. So, so it had to be around, yeah, it had to be 70, 67. It had to be 67 right in there. Okay. May, May 67. Okay. I know it was May 14th. I can't remember what year. That's horrible. What's in my tea? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> but anyway, yeah, they, um, when I went back uh, in 2002 or uh, t- 2017, uh, all the stuff that I found that was gone. Right. That was gone. Um, they were finding stuff, but, but it was all buried under the ground. You know, and we had to dig down like 12 inches uh, because it's like since that time period, the like, uh, you know, like the jungle grows, you know, um, mountains grow the uh, from all the debris coming down from the trees and stuff turns into soil and just keeps growing. But you have to go down and the soil is so uh, acidic over there that it eats a lot of the bones. And so hopefully what you can do is you you hope you can find some teeth, but you got to take the roots out of all these, some of these trees and stuff and break them up because the tooth could be inside one of those roots. So it's, it's real hard work. Those guys that go over and do that work. uh, They're amazing. They're really amazing. Well, and and it's essentially like archeology span work almost like it is. It is archeology. span Yeah. They, they block it all off. They line it up, they cut down, they, they, take notes on everything and every little bit that comes down, like if it drips comes running down the hill, they catch it and it all goes in the buckets. And then you, you throw the buckets in a shaker and you're going through everything, trying to clean it out. So it's a, it's a real tedious job, but the, the guys that the military guys, it's a joint group too. They've got air force, they got Marines, they've got army. Uh, I think that's about it. It's the air force Marines and army when I was there. Um, but they all work together. And they work really hard, man. They work hard. Mm-hmm. You see like um, little kids that are like so full of energy when they're going to go to Disneyland. It's like that all every day up until the end of each day. And you stay out there at night and every other night you can fly back into Ban Lung on the helicopter and you can take a shower and have a bite to eat. And then you go back out in the morning 
and um, and then the next crew will, can go out and they get the day off, take a shower, sleep, get a decent meal because we're sleeping in hammocks, you know, and stuff. So some of the guys that have been doing it for a while, they had little air mattresses and, you know, nice beds and tents and yeah. I mean, they have to build showers and everything else, you know, for the guys and the girls because it's mixed, both men and women. So, but it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> but um, let me see. Getting back to, yeah, they found uh, 127. Apparently the enemy has this thing they wear around their neck and it's got their, their message in a, like a tube or something they wear, you know, on their, on their, underneath their uniform. And they, they were finding a lot of that stuff. But they were finding bones, which is interesting. So that means that the the acidity of the soil kept some of those bones there still. So I'm just hoping they find Dallin Trent. Um, I you know there's rumors that um, Eric Huberth might have been taken a prisoner, and then he might have died in a prison camp. But I can't imagine he probably would have died pretty really quick because. Uh, that jet hit so hard. And he, I'm sure he had spinal injuries and everything. But I think they were both killed. I think they were both killed right there. I really do. So, you know, regardless of the rumor. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, the, the result, I guess, of the, the two times that you went, so 2002 and then 2017, um, you know, you were able to find some wreckage and, you know, signs of the jet, I suppose. Um, and yeah. then the, the dog tags were found in 2019. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 19 or just a few years ago. The, uh, I brought back pieces of the jet and gave it to the family. I still got a piece to give to uh, Alan Trent's family. Hmm. If they're interested, they haven't contacted me and I haven't heard back. So yeah. I think that's with the sisters. We're friends on Facebook. Yeah. And, th- and that was interesting too. Like when we were chatting about that, y- you know, it's, um, you know, I guess the way that some families deal with, you know, again, I, I guess it kind of comes down to how you handle grief and, you know, everybody handles that differently. And um, so it was kind of, but even the fact of um, getting some of that back to um, his sister was a bit, it wasn't like an initially welcome thing, I suppose, or how, how did that work for you or your experience with that? Um, what I did is um, the um, uh, the joint recovery team people back, back East in Washington, they, they went ahead and contacted the family and said, we've got a guy that he would, if you're interested in talking to him, he was on the actual mission. And so they wanted to talk to me. So I talked to, actually, I talked to their mother. She's, she's deceased by now, but now, but uh, I talked to her and there was a little anger there and stuff like that, but I don't think they understood the whole, the whole concept of what actually happened. You know, they don't realize how hard these missions are. You know, they're horrible. You know, well, that- and I suppose were they would they have been told that they died in Vietnam because it was uh or, or would they, they have probably, been told because it was probably told them, right? yeah, they probably told them that they were died on a mission in Vietnam. Right. That's probably what they told them. Um the same with all our decorations, all has a, a paramilitary uh Vietnamese paramilitary group in Vietnam. You know, all none of our if you get the medals today, they they'll come they it, they they put down Cambodia, Laos, stuff like that. But back then they didn't. Mm-hmm. It was all getting up stuff. Yeah. And and part of that had to do with um just the, the secrecy of what was actually happening, you know, so that the there was plausible deniability on the uh, American government side. 
But see, I was talking to the mother, and the mother has passed on now. One of the sisters has passed on. And I think there's like two sisters left or something. And um, Eric Huber, I mean, um, Alan Trent has one sister as far as I know. So see, we have to wait and see where that goes. Uh, I think that's it I, uh, with the family. Yeah. Um, we stay in touch. They they let me know because uh, the recovery teams let them know what they find and stuff. So that kind of works out pretty good. Right. And then they pass it on to me. And I'm we're both good friends with uh, one of our friends over in Cambodia that keeps us informed as well. And so the, the two times that you went back, uh, obviously the first time, like when the mission was actually occurring, uh, that's a pretty tough feeling to you know, essentially have an unfinished mission, you have to leave and you had to leave them there. Um, yeah. But did it sort of feel like you had a bit of closure or you felt better about the situation when you went back um, in 2002 and 2017, where you could really get a, a bit of a lay of the land? And that was it. It was that's that's what it was. It was the lay of the land when I realized that there was no way I can get to the other side to where the jet laid the rest. That helped me out tremendously there. And and to I still don't know how many N we were coming up behind. You know, in retrospect, I'm sitting there going, well, maybe I can get the team out and I'll just stay there and just hide under, you know, run and hide or something like that. But there's no telling who I'm going to run into. Mm -hmm. So I could get myself captured real easy. So it's probably the best thing is just uh, what I did, just to get the team out of there and keep them, um, you know, keep keep them and keep them alive especially with Homer, because chances are, you know, Homer probably wouldn't have made it if they would have interrogated him. And they probably would have just killed all the, you know, the mercenaries that I had with me. So I'm still trying to get, because I'm looking, oh, that works. That works even better. There we go. Can you see me? Oh, yeah, I got you. Okay, good. Yeah, it looks better. Because before, I'm like, you're over here and my camera's up here. And I'm sitting All there. right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just feels kind of weird yeah there you go um and, and so as far as just you know the, the closure from your end um i don't know how, how does that feel does it sort of feel like well there's i still don't have closure i'm sure just like the family doesn't have closure but they're they're more closer it's obvious as a family member um but it, it just kind of hurts because i i never failed on a mission you know no matter what the mission was I mean, I've had some really hellacious missions and I've always managed to get them done. You know, I had a PJ mission where I jumped into 32 foot seas and nasty storm and winds and everything else. But we got the guy out and uh, saved his life, you know, so. But um, but yeah, you know, in Vietnam, yeah, I um, I never, ever turned down a mission. But when I took a mission, I always wanted to complete that mission. I felt I felt like I was. I was a loser if I didn't finish it. You know what I mean? So, you know, some guys will say, well, that's the best I could do. But no, not me. And I, it, it just eats me alive until I can get them. Right. So, and I think we're getting close to finding out what happened and the truth and everything. Mm -hmm. If, if there was, if there, if he was, if Eric Kuberth was taken as a prisoner, he couldn't have gone very far. I'd like to know where that prison was. And when I went back over, 
I looked all over the place for that, trying to find old people that lived in the area during like before the Khmer Rouge and stuff. And, and I, uh, I could not, I couldn't find anybody. And some of them say, yeah, there was some place here, but we don't remember. And cause I had my interpreter with me, right. From the, from the uh, Rangers. But uh, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to find out where that prison went because if there was a prison, that means there's other Americans there somewhere. That's right. You know, so they can, they can find it, but that'd be just the cat's meow. Mm -hmm. Just dig them up and find everybody who's there. And do you, do you anticipate going back? Because I know there was something about the, the, the DPAA and just for for the defense POW MIA accounting agency, um, you were supposed to go back with them and didn't or yeah i was supposed to go back with them and they said i'd be going and then they changed their mind at the last minute because i called them up and i said hey shouldn't i be coming over he goes all oh, the team's are already on their way i'm going come on man you know and now they got a civilian group and so i've been talking with the civilian group trying to get them to get and they said that it's not up to us it's up to uh dpaa you know they can't just bring anybody on board they got to be approved by dpaa and I think the biggest thing is my age. You know, I'm 77. And um, I think that might be one of the problems they're worried about. You know, I mean, I still jump out of airplanes and scuba dive, scuba dive and everything else. So, but um, I think uh, this time when I go to the the SOAR meeting, the Special Operations Reunion, I'm going to talk to DPA guys there. I'll talk to them and, and, and find out, you know, because they usually bring a guy in from DPAA. I'll talk to him and find out what the scoop is. And he's probably going to give me a run around, you know, you know, they, they don't get it. You know, they really don't get it. Uh, the people on the ground do, but the people, the officers, they don't get it. You know, they're in their own little world. Well, Listen, and I suppose like that's the discrepancy between, you know, that that's how things get lost in bureaucracy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They got more important things to deal with in their mind. So I'm sad. Well, and I think at, at that point, um, at least for today or for right now, um, I, I think we'll uh, we'll conclude here. So for the listener, uh, they can go right on to uh, the second episode, part two, because um, it's always funny the way that these always work out. I, I always talk to you guys ahead of time and yeah, yeah, we'll get it done in one one go. It never works out that way. We always go over the time, and uh, so I think what we'll do is um, we're just going to do a second episode and we're going to talk about the pretty lengthy career that you had uh, right after SOG as well and then we'll get to uh, present day and and cover all the intricacies there Um, but thank you so much for for being here Joe I really appreciate it oh hey my pleasure anytime I I really enjoy doing these this is my little bit of uh, immortality (laughs) that's true that's right yeah exactly it well, and I, and I really appreciate the fact that you reached out to me. Um, that was that was very cool. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, it was very flattering. And um, it, it's always, always a good feeling. I love talking about uh, it's kind of funny how you find a little uh, niche within a niche that I have here at this podcast. But uh, well, I know one of the things you were talking about was like for for the kids, you know, a lot of young viewers. And um, anytime you want to talk about that, that I'd love to, you know, how I lived and stuff and how I did it on my own and how I managed to, you know, because I, I was 21 when I had to go, I had to get into the army. I had to have a high school diploma. A GED wouldn't work. And um, I mean, you can get in the army, but you couldn't get into special forces. 
So I had I went back to high school at 21 years old. And uh, they finally got tired of me there and said, I'm just going to give you a diploma. And they kicked me, kept me out. Yeah, get out of here. Diploma. So that worked out really well. But starting from nothing and not having anything and ending up as a doctor, you know, is, is I think is anybody can do it if I could do it. That's it. it just got to work at it. So. Yeah. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that for this, uh, for, for the next episode. So, uh, but yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.